When you look at many countries, they say they want to reach net carbon zero by a certain year. And when you look at whether it's the Hygiene Council or there's many different organizations that have done the calculation, and no matter how they looked at it, that's almost impossible without hydrogen being part of the equation. It's Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, Kuneethi Padia and Tom Miller. In today's episode, Fueling a Cleaner Future with Hydrogen and Catalysts. We have a special guest today, all the way from the United Kingdom. Mauritz Van Tal is the Chief Technology Officer at Johnson Matthey, a global leader in sustainable technology. Welcome, Mauritz. Hi, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Of course. So to start us off, we wanted to ask you about what exactly is your current role and how did your passions for renewable energies get you to where you are today? Yes. So a little bit about myself. I'm a chemist by training, actually in the area of catalysis and surface science primarily. So I studied chemistry in Leiden University in the Netherlands. And one year at the University of East Anglia here in Norwich in the UK as an exchange student. Uh, did my master's and then went on to do a PhD in catalysis and surface science, also at Leiden University in the Netherlands, my home country, as you can hear, and uh, in collaboration with UC Berkeley, which is more in your neck of the woods, so uh, at the Department of Chemistry there. Uh, So that's a little bit my background. I actually did my PhD on studying the fundamental reactions that take place on the automotive catalytic converter. So in that sense, it's very nice to be back at JM since October last year because they are, of course, the pioneer in automotive catalysis. When you look back a little bit, so yeah, you can say sustainability was important at that time in my PhD, because it was about, you know, cleaner air. But actually, it was not a big theme at that time. That has changed tremendously. I was exposed to it for the first time, actually, when I went to the UK. University of East Anglia was a young, small university, but pioneering, leading in environmental sciences. And I did some courses in that field. So that's how I got exposed. And throughout my career, I've also worked in the bio-based space since 2010. So I got exposed to that quite significantly. And I was active in the plastics industry. We all know the issues that the plastics industry is facing. And I worked at the company that tried to really be a leader in recycling and giving plastics another life and seeing use plastics as a valuable raw material, not as a waste product. So you see that throughout my career, sustainability is becoming more and more important. And now I joined the Johnson Matthias CTO in October last year. And, and you see it already in our tagline. It's inspiring science, enhancing life. We're a global leader in sustainable technologies. Proof point of that, 87% of our sales is already now linked to one or more of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We win several awards also quite recently from the London Stock Exchange. We're a member of the FTSE for Good. And I like that very much because next to the fact that I'm a scientist and the scientist is interesting, I'm also a father and I'm a concerned parent in the fact that, you know, what we do to the planet is not sustainable. And then we leave you guys, the younger generation, with a mortgage. I think that's pretty unacceptable, right? That's not sustainable. So I would like to work on a culture also here at the company 
where all the scientists can work on technologies that help us leave the planet in a better place for future generations. So that is then also my personal driver. And it's very nice for me and a privilege that I can bring these two, the personal passion and drive, and my interest as a scientist together in a company like Johnson Method. And that's why I joined the company, actually. So let's dive into that a little bit. What motivates you about your current work day to day as a CTO? Is it the fact that you want to improve the world for future generations, including your children? It's one of the drivers. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I joined Johnson Matthew. And it is great. You know, it's a company with a 200 years heritage and having pioneered and enabled the Apollo missions because we were, you know, leading and are still leading in fuel cell technology. Already that was in the 60s. We were one of the first ones to adopt the idea that platinum metals can be used as a cancer therapy. This is fascinating the good things that you can do with science. And for me, that is, I need to have a job with a purpose. You know, it's nice to earn money or drive a big car or what have you, but I think it's pretty mundane. I think it's nice, right? It's nice to have, but it's not at all my prime driver. You know, we have 1,500 people in research development at Johnson Matthew, and they are the experts. I am not. But what I can contribute and really try every day is create this culture where people thrive working on technologies that make the planet a better place. So getting more into this material science side of the things for this conversation. So at a high level, what is the role of material science in the development of more sustainable, renewable energy solutions? And how can the carbon footprint of the manufacturing of these renewable energy products be minimized for a more sustainable future? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I think we tend to look first at products and what right. is the footprint of products. What we don't discuss a lot is the influence of how these products are being manufactured, right? So that's another element. You can make different products, different chemicals in different ways. There, for example, catalysis plays an important role, a catalyst allows us to use less energy for a certain chemical conversion, for example. So there you have, you reduce the carbon footprint. Process technology is important. Process intensification. If you have applied process intensification, miniaturization of plants as a principle, you, you limit the footprint in the amount of material that is required to build a plant. Uh, automation and robotics are, are, can be very, very important. Artificial intelligence, data mining, to get the max out of a certain plant, for example. And that is then again reducing the footprint. Do you use renewable energy to power your plants, your assets uh, in the first place? That's another element. And then do you recycle the water, the waste? What do you do with the waste that you produce? And we can think about processes to convert waste into very clean jet fuel. We have a process technology for that as, as Johnson Matthew. That's even being commercialized. And then another part is, of course, bringing an industry to scale as soon as possible, because scale means energy optimization. And, you know, you reduce the amount of energy, water, whatever it is, resources per unit of stuff produced. And material science plays a role in everything, in the catalysis, in the type of metallurgy that you use in your plants. Yeah, maybe when you go for smaller plants, process intensification, you get maybe, I don't know, a high acidity. Okay, different choice of metals, different coatings. I mean, it's everywhere, isn't it? 
So material science is key. Yeah, material science really is everywhere. And that's what we're trying to show yeah. our listeners with this podcast. But let's start with the catalyst process. So JM yep. creates catalysts that stop about 20 million tons of pollutants right in their tracks every single year, which I just find incredible. So can you unpack yep. this system on a higher level and discuss how toxic carbon monoxide gas and hydrocarbons go in, but clean air comes out? I think that is one of the of very impactful inventions, actually, that also JM did. We pioneered and produced these systems since, I believe, 1974. And what it does is when you have a car engine, not all the fuel is burned, right? You get some residual hydrocarbons that go out of the engine. Also, you know, you produce carbon monoxide, like you say, and all kinds of nitrogen oxides. And in the end, they are not good for the environment and not good for our health. And that means that these catalytic converters, it's basically a ceramic block on which you have some noble metals, platinum, palladium, rhodium, uh, deposited as a catalyst. And these metals with the right electronics and what have you, they convert these materials, the hydrocarbons, the CO, the NOx, into nitrogen, CO2, and water. And in the latest models, there is also quite a lot of attention for the emission of particles, soot particles from diesel engines, but also gasoline engines make some of these microparticles. And there's this specific active filters that convert those particles into CO2 and water as well. You clean all the exhaust gases and the total of all the cars that are driving around and being equipped with the catalytic converters that we have supplied, that means it's about 20 million tons of pollutants that they convert and do not emit into the environment. It's, it's very, very impactful. In terms of that innovation that catalysts provide, do you see other spaces where these types of technologies can make an impact and reduce atmospheric pollutant levels outside of the automotive industry? Yeah, I think, and, and, and also, like material science is everywhere, catalysis is everywhere. Right. <laughs> catalysis is everywhere. It, it, it's just true. Uh, you know, in that sense, I selected the right studies also. Uh, because we, of course, a logical step from the mobile NOx conversion, for example, is you go to static sources. So when you produce ammonia or when you have burned fuel in power plants, so more static sources, you can also equip those with catalytic converters. And that's also being done to make sure that also there you purify the exhaust gases. And then, as I said before, in many chemical processes, you use catalysts to, in general, reduce the amount of energy that is required for a chemical conversion or increase the selectivity of a certain reaction that you make from product A, you make the product B at a very high yield. So then you don't need to purify so much which would also consume either water or energy or what have you. So catalysis is everywhere. Then there is another way of looking at it, and that is looking at catalysts that basically allow the transition from a process to generate energy, heat, to another process that is less of a burden on the environment. Let me give a concrete example. We can burn oil and gas, of course, and then purify the exoskeleton, what have you. But we have also catalytic systems that help us with the production of hydrogen. And then you enable this energy transition that you hear a lot about from oil and gas and coal into more 
using hydrogen. Also there, hydrogen and catalysis also go, go hand in hand. So also catalysis is everywhere and enables then even a whole uh, energy transition. You know, when you would burn hydrogen, you only get water. Glad you brought up hydrogen because that is something we definitely want to unpack in this conversation as well. So as students, we've really heard a good amount about hydrogen in our in our undergraduate experience. And we've seen the use of hydrogen as an energy carrier gain significant momentum and press attention recently. So after doing a little bit of research on our end, we found that the Hydrogen Council even estimates that hydrogen will make potentially up to 18% of the global energy demand by 2050. So can you talk about this recent development and get into what makes hydrogen such an effective energy source that could really help meet our sustainable energy goals in the future? Yeah, the attention for hydrogen economy, I mean, has, has gone through the roof recently because it's a very important energy transition. When you look at many countries and more and more so, they say they want to reach net carbon zero by a certain year, a certain date. And when you look at whether it's the Hygiene Council or, you know, there's many different organizations that have done the calculation. And no matter how they looked at it, that's almost impossible without hydrogen being part of the equation. And it works actually quite well. It goes hand in hand, for example, with when you look at the cost of renewable energy has been decreasing tremendously over the last couple of decades, in particular, renewable electricity. And in some areas, can be Norway, can be for sure in the north of the Netherlands, but also I was at the World Economic Forum. And you see in California, for example, there is so much renewable electricity at times that they have no clue what to do with it. And then you can convert water into hydrogen. And hydrogen is a very versatile molecule. You can store it for a while, then burn it again to generate electricity. So you buffer day and night differences in renewable electricity, not only use, but generation as well. But also you can ship it around the world for all kinds of chemical conversions. You can use it as a fuel in processes that are very hard to decarbonize. And, you know, I modify some of the burners and use hydrogen to heat some of those systems. Then hydrogen relatively easily be mixed in countries, for example, where you have a natural gas grid. You could add hydrogen at some stage and you can use it for domestic heating relatively easily. So that means that you can apply that basically tomorrow if you wish, if you have this pipeline infrastructure there. So that would be very, very nice. As I said before, it's shippable. You can make ammonia out of it. Again, ammonia is a commodity. Ammonia can be used as a fuel, is being used as a fuel, for example, on large ships. So there you see that hydrogen is very, very versatile. And you can imagine that it can be part of the equation for some countries, depending on the situation where you're at. That's why this transition to a hydrogen economy is something very exciting. And we like it in particular, Johnson Matthew, because we have been active in yeah. the development of catalysts and technologies to produce hydrogen from, for example, from natural gas, which delivers a very high purity level of CO2 at high pressures that you can then store underground in empty or emptying oil fields, or it's of such purity that you could use it for chemical reactions, for example, or for fizzy drinks or what have you. And we have, because of our background in catalysis and in fuel cells, we of course also use hydrogen to generate electricity. We're very well connected and very well placed to benefit from this energy transition. And we look forward to being a part of that and, and, and an enabler of this uh, transition. So 
a follow-up to that discussion is, so hydrogen sounds very promising, and I'm excited to see where that future lands. However, I am curious, are there any major hurdles that you see from your vantage point in industry for hydrogen technology in its current state, which will inhibit our future shift to a more hydrogen energy dependent world? So when you look at this hydrogen economy, it's really, really very small right now, right? We should realize that. So the plans that we read about are gigantic. So that energy transition is going to be a massive change, requiring a lot of capital, which means, of course, we need to bring this industry to scale in order to make sure we reduce the overall cost. That means up front, we need to work now on technologies that can generate hydrogen at as low as possible cost. That journey now starts and is accelerated with this current discussion on this energy transition towards hydrogen. So the interest has gone up so much that we're all jumping on it and trying to think about scenarios, how to get from very, very small hydrogen economy right now, where we need to go to. And that's not going to be very easy. We need to bring the cost of the production of hydrogen down. We're working on it. And I think there's very fair chances to do a great job here. The thing is, of course, you need more than just the hydrogen. Because then you have hydrogen localized, maybe produced locally. You need an infrastructure to transport it. You need legislation. You need pipelines, whatever it is that you need. So that means that we need to look at the whole value chain. We can't just look at the production of hydrogen and its use, but also the whole structure in between, how to transport it from A to Z. And then when you look at the context, what we all need to establish, then 15 or 18% is tremendous. Let's start with that goal in mind and let's see how can we make that happen. If we can do more, it would be great. But uh, this is already a challenge of gigantic proportions. And that's how I look at it. This is not just catalyst scientists. This requires an integrated approach. That's why I'm saying we need to work all together, governments and companies and everyone in the value chain, including a lot of engineering to make this transition happen. This is all hands on deck. Quick definition before we get into this next part of the conversation. So the term we want to define is photovoltaic cells, or often abbreviated PVs for short. So what are photovoltaic cells? They are electrical devices that convert light directly into electricity, which, when many are electrically combined together, are used to make solar panels. Photovoltaic cells come up in this next part of our conversation because of how it has taken off as a solution to decarbonizing energy production in the past few years. But without further ado, let's get back to the show. So what other current limitations do you see exist in the renewable energy space outside of costs and specifically to the points that are materials related? That's a good question. Actually, I'm quite inspired by the journey, the trajectory that PV, the photovoltaic cells, went through as an example of how a renewable energy industry can develop. Because when I was young, it was expensive. You need silica, silicon wafers. They cost a lot of energy to produce. That makes it, again, expensive. Footprint very far away from ideal. So will you ever get a return on your investment, both money-wise, but also carbon footprint-wise? And when you look at the reduction of raw material use that has been achieved in that industry, 
and and the extremely low cost of renewable electricity right now that is unbelievable what has been done there again by many many scientists also a lot of material scientists and of course engineering as well i want to mention also here again the role of engineering and manufacturing because nowadays it is like roll to roll printing of pv it has become a massive industry extremely cheap they come in different shapes and sizes to make sure you can apply them in many different areas so it is very cheap it is mass produced and i think that is a journey that many other renewable energy areas will need to go through we just discussed the hygiene economy same thing it is this learning curve that we will all need to go through and every time we learn from maybe in PV, it took 20 years or 30 years, whatever the number. Can we do it in 15 or in 10 this time? Because you learn from what such an industry went through, a related industry went through. But it gives me a lot of energy because we can apparently do more with less. And that journey can be extremely successful, whether it was with computers, computer power or the PV industry. I'm sure we can also copy that in uh, the hydrogen space, for example. So moving towards the technology side of this a little bit. So at JM, you use several platinum group metals in your catalysts and in fuel cells yep. and electronics. But there are some technical challenges with being able to recycle these rare metals. And of course, they're extremely valuable. So recycling them is of the utmost importance. So talk to some of the challenges that the industry is currently facing in recycling platinum group metals or PGMs for short. For our listeners, platinum group metals are typically defined as the metals, which include platinum, ruthenium, rhodium, palladium, and iridium, broadly speaking. And how can some of these challenges be overcome to better enable the sustainable utilization of these materials in the future? Yeah, I think that is a very good question. But also we have a long history in trying to answer those questions. So, so right. let me start with the history of uh, Johnson Matthey. It's a company right. that's more than 200 years old. And at the heart of the origin, the roots of the company, it's all about refining and purifying platinum group metals. So we have a 200-year history in this space. We have extremely sophisticated processes, and we still innovate a lot in that space. Uh, we produce these metals with 99.95% purity. And in the course of these 200 years, we have improved these recycling processes so much that actually the recycling of platinum group metals is not a big issue. It is, it is very, very easy to take the catalytic converter from a car from 20 years ago. And after it ends of life, the customers bring it back and we recycle the, we take out the noble metals and we use them again. That is common practice and we're very, very good at it. But that has, of course, a long, long history. What is very important in this context, if you know that a material is relatively rare, take into the consideration immediately when you start to develop a certain use for such a material, what am I going to do with it at the end of its active life, industrial life? So I call that design for recycling. And at Johnson Matthey, we are very fond of this circular economy. We think that it is a business imperative. It is really important and it's a demand from our customers and supply chains to show that we can think and act in a circular way. So our scientists, when they 
they have ideas about a new application, a new catalyst, whatever for these noble metals, but also for other materials. Before they start, they think things through. You know, what are the potential different avenues we can follow? What are the potential different solutions we can find? What would be the sustainability profile of each of those solutions? Carbon footprint, whatever. But also end of life part, taking it into account and then choose the solution that has the best overall life cycle assessment, the best picture for also using them at the end of the life of the catalyst. How can we take it back and recycle it or reuse it easily? So these design for recycling principles we take into account from day one before we start the R&D project for all our projects because we know how important it is. We're very well skilled at it. And we also try to think how can we proliferate and use our knowledge that we have acquired for PGM recycling, the platinum group metals, also for other raw materials. It's really in our DNA at Johnson Matthew to think circular from the onset. No, that's, that's fantastic, especially in these materials, which are just so incredibly intensive to be able to extract. So to stay on the topic of platinum group metals, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that there had been developments in using PGMs in cancer therapies. So I was curious if you could dig into that a little bit more and describe what some of these novel cancer therapies, which involve these platinum group metals, what those entail and what makes them so promising. This class of materials, it was found, I think, in the 60s. It was invented that these certain platinum compounds, cisplatinum in particular, that they had an activity against fighting cancer cells. And the side effects were very severe. And very early after these first inventions, Johnson Matthey tried to help the pharmaceutical industry develop new types of platinum compounds that were as active, but with somewhat more limited side effects. So nowadays, we know a lot more about how the different cancer types need to be treated. And the platinum group is quite a harsh type of medicine. So they are used for very hard to treat aggressive cancer types. But there's many other drugs that have been developed that are a little bit less damaging to the body and have less side effects for other types of cancer. But we were involved very early and helped with the chemistry because we knew so much about the complex chemistry of platinum in particular at the time. And so we tried to help the medics. And we also helped produce those, the raw materials for those drugs. And we still do. And so one little personal antidote there, actually. When we were preparing for this episode, we actually watched a video about platinum group metals. It was by a channel called Periodic Videos, but there was a chemist in a JM facility. For our listeners who want context for what these metals look like and how ridiculously expensive they are, he was <laughs> essentially playing with iridium and platinum and some of these other materials in a very controlled environment. But I really thought that was a, a fantastic way of understanding the significance of these materials that your industry and your company in particular works with. Yeah, yeah it's, I think it's, it's a great group of metals, you know, as yes. a metal. As a metal, they're very versatile and they help in the car, for example, to purify the exhaust gas. If you right. start to do chemistries with them, they can, you can use them as, for example, an anti-cancer drug. And I think, you know, it's a, it shows the versatility of these relatively rare, expensive materials, but also the incredible benefits they can offer. Let's move on to renewable energy in the battery space and electric vehicles, because that is something that Johnson Matthey is working on, is developing cathode materials for batteries, correct? 
That is correct. So just for context, one of the major issues currently surrounding lithium ion batteries is that overdependence on cobalt and cobalt is fairly rare. It's toxic towards the environment and it's often used as a trace element from the mining of other commercially valuable metals in these subpar mining conditions. There have been linkages to human rights violations. So due to these limitations, cobalt has the potential risk of dramatically hindering the mass adoption of lithium ion powered electric vehicles if the battery architecture doesn't change. So I wanted to ask you, how do you see these current limitations of existing lithium ion batteries limiting their mass adaptions into electric vehicles? And how do you see those challenges potentially being overcome in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think that's a very good and very relevant question, of course, because, you know, also here at Johnson Matthew, we want to do things in a ethical, in the right way. And I think that's really important, something similar with cobalt. So also here, it is very important if and when you use cobalt and also cobalt as specific applications that are really very worthwhile, worthwhile pursuing. But you need to make sure that your whole supply chain is a kind of certified by independent parties and make sure that you know where the material comes from. That is where it's for me where it starts for us, that if you need it, there's no other way around it, that at least you use it, you know, the materials that is that you know where it comes from and, and it's certified and what have you, as I said. What you will do immediately is, of course, think about as a chemist, so can't I think about alternatives? You know, aren't batteries possible where you use very, very limited amount of cobalt or no cobalt at all? Um, and now we take cobalt, but that is, of course, you know, holding through in, in many of the chemistries. And that's, again, where material scientists play a role. You know, don't try to look at the LCA and at the, the footprints and traceability from the onset of a certain application and say, can I do a bot better job? And when you look at the cathode materials that we are developing at Johnson Matthey, they are very rich in nickel and they use hardly any cobalt. And I think that is one of the trends. You, you, we have a material that is, first of all, it allows for very high energy densities. So you need less to propel a car or you make the range longer, for example. But the other thing is that it also uses less and less cobalt when you look at the development over time. That also goes very, very rapidly. And it's a system that is also very versatile which means that you can tailor it to the customer needs and you can work with your customer to come to solutions where you use less and less and in the end, maybe no cobalt uh, whatsoever. So that is, of course, and should be a driver for those materials that are very, very rare. We need to take care that we only use them when absolutely necessary. I think nobody will debate that using minute amounts of platinum for anti-cancer drugs to save people's lives, it's a very good application. But in other applications, if you can find alternatives or alternative approaches or shapes of a catalyst or what have you to limit the amount of such materials, that's just a good thing. As I said before, it's about doing more with less. I completely agree. We actually found an article that we shared on our LinkedIn page. It was hashtag simple summary, go check it out. But it was exactly the same things that you were talking about, about transitioning to nickel-based cathodes so that you can keep reducing. That was actually completely cobalt-free 
And so it was just really cool to see how you can make that transition and solve so many of the issues that coincide with cobalt by transitioning to nickel. Yeah, you can only do it when you employ great scientists. What we do at Johnson Methy, and I hope that many of you who listen to this podcast think, hey, you know, this is a very nice area. I need to go into the material sciences because I can then contribute to such transitions. And we have already covered quite a number during this podcast. Material scientists are at the core. So innovation never stops. There's (laughs) always, always, you know, work to be done for good scientists pushing the boundaries all the time. And so on this realm of pushing boundaries and changing paradigms, particularly as engineers developing in our thought processes, there tends to be a larger emphasis on the cost of materials, the properties of the materials that we're working with, and the ease of manufacturing and making decisions. While unfortunately the role of sustainability in the decision-making process tends to be a little bit more limited, unfortunately, in our current state. But just as we discussed a number of ways in which these sustainable technologies make a significant impact on the earth. And it's relatively fascinating to see how innovations behind all those up and coming solutions, how can sustainability be rebranded in the workplace and in the classroom to make it so that it is one of those key down to the core motivators that engineers think about when they're making important business decisions or you know, research decisions or otherwise. You know, this is, it is a very important topic and I couldn't shout loud enough in this <laughs> microphone to, to all these teachers at the university to make sustainability thinking and acting and all the principles of carbon footprints, gas material, resources, etc. a part of the curriculum. And why do I say that? When you look at our customers, more and more they ask for all these kind of elements. It's part of the procurement decision they make. They have the choice between many different suppliers and they will more and more make the choice, not just for the cheapest, but for those that have a very good performance, attractive price, yes, but also sustainability is worth something. And also the fact that you certify where your raw materials come from and can show that. And that, you know, impartial parties have certified it. All those elements are becoming more and more important. So for us as Johnson Matthey, that is great because we want to be this ethical company. And we believe in the end, companies who embrace circular thinking, sustainability, they will win in the end. It's becoming more, as I said before, a business imperative. And that means that our scientists, as I said before, before they start the project, they need to think and they need to write stuff down and checklist and what have you, have a dialogue with our sustainability department at the front end loading part of the project to think about all these different elements and then to pursue the right avenue towards a solution, something that solves the customer problem, but also that it is affordable And not only financially, but also from a planet point of view. And I think that is people, planet, profit. I think that is really important to take all those elements in the equation. Also, when you educate young people, we need this as an industry. So it should be obligatory in every year of every STEM curriculum. And ideally, even much broader. Because there I mentioned before, many of the gigantic challenges that lie ahead of us 
they are not just for chemists or physicists or metallurgists, the material sciences. We need economists that think that way and legal people and marketing sales. We need them all. The challenges that lie ahead of us are so big that it's all hands on deck and we can only solve it when we work very well together. And that's why it is really, really crucial that we start to educate the younger generation on all these principles around sustainability. Because we need you, yeah, your generation, to, to, to solve many of the issues, right? Because I have another, what is it, 10, 15 years to go, many of the problems will not be solved by then. I hope we come a long way, will not be solved. Still a lot to be done. And that means like we need to inspire the young generation to educate them, to be these contributors in helping to solve the big issues. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And we realized that even today in, in our course curriculum, it's not obligatory for us to take a sustainability class with our engineering classes. And I think that needs to change. And it's honestly yes. mind boggling that that's the case. And I feel like even, yeah. even in high school, it should be taught too. Or Absolutely. And so simple to repair. It's so simple to repair. There's many experts out there, including industry, that would love to teach on those subjects because we all have the same drive. And that is, we need to make sure that we take a little bit more care of the planet and its resources. That is also livable for more people and for many hundreds, if not thousands of years and not decades. And I think that is, you know, it's, it's a moral obligation for the older generation to teach the young that there is a few things that we did not do right and we need to correct it and educate them on ways how to approach these big issues and how they can help, how you can help solve these, these topics. Can be changed and should be changed tomorrow, also <laughs> at your university. Yeah, very reputable university. So I'm sure in a few years they will be leading in this field if they want to. We certainly impact a lot in this conversation and I'd like for you to bottom line it for us. So what are three things that you would like for our listeners to take away from this discussion of innovations in the sustainable technology space and what material science innovations do you really see being on that forefront that our listeners should be keeping an eye on as they move forward with their lives? So three points, huh? So, uh, yeah, so, so the, only three. Yeah, oh my God, <laughs> only three. Only three. Okay. So, elevate the pitch here. So, <laughs> all right. Good, good challenge. So, I mean, sustainable technology development is uh, it's exciting. I hope I sketch with some examples. It's exciting. It's also essential. I hope that that has come out very, very clearly. Yeah. And material science plays a very important role. And it's a key area for Johnson Matthew, the whole sustainable technology space. We love to collaborate with other parties in the value chains that we are active in to crack some of those difficult nuts. And we need the younger generation to help us with that. That would be the first bullet with some sub bullets, I agree, but my first <laughs> bullet. The, sec the second one is, I think when you look at renewable energy, the energy transition, these are big areas of rapid growth driven by a wish to drive to net zero when you look at uh, the energy transition towards hydrogen. And that means this is all about reducing the costs of new technologies in this space. So bringing it to scale very quickly. 
And again, here, it's the whole value chain that needs to collaborate to make sure that this happens at the right time, which is basically starting now. The clock is ticking. So that is another collaboration throughout the value chain. And I hope I radiate it that innovation in the sustainable technology space is cool because it provides you with the opportunity to leave a legacy, to leave the planet in a somewhat better shape as it is right now. And, you know, to think about the future generation. And I think that is fantastic because, as I said at the beginning, that's one of the drivers. You know, if I can only contribute a tiny little bit to that, you know, I would be happy because it's essential that we do something. And material scientists play an extremely important role in helping design solutions, technologies to solve the problems that we are facing as humanity, as the planet. And uh, so could even summarize it at the end with one bullet. Our planet needs you, material scientists. And I think then the world will become a, a better place. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing all of this information and really emphasizing the point of the requirement of innovation on the sustainable technologies field and how important material science is to that innovation. We really enjoyed having you on the show and just wanted to allow you to share how our listeners can find you, whether that's LinkedIn or also talk about your company, Johnson Matthey, and how they can learn more about that. Yeah. So Johnson Matthey can be reached, of course, via the internet. And please, you know, I have a LinkedIn profile. You can connect to the LinkedIn profile and we welcome your input. So uh, via the website, I can be found innovation at matty.com. And if you put my name in there, then uh, it, will, it will end up on my desk eventually. So, you know, please reach out. And uh, I look forward to that. And thank you for your, uh, for your invite and giving me the opportunity to at least try to inspire the younger generations in this very important field of material science and the STEM subjects in general. So and I wish you good luck with your, uh, with your studies. We really enjoyed thank having you. you on the show. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material Worlds podcast. We will look forward to releasing our next episode in two weeks. But until then, if you want to hear from us, we are on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Search for us as It's a Material Worlds podcast. Links to our social media sites will also be in the show notes. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. We're just two college students looking to get started with a podcast, and we want to grow the show with our community's input. You can send us feedback through messaging on any of our social media sites. Feel free to also provide feedback by messaging us directly on LinkedIn, either to Punithu Padia or Thomas Miller. But until then, take care and stay healthy.